CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. It's time once again for the Coin World Podcast, and we're glad that you are along, taking a seat right beside us right here as we get set on this great journey that we have. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And we are really uh, proud to be a part of this very special program here and to have along with us CoinWorld Plus, which is one of the newest uh, information uh, sources that you can find out there. Check out their website, coinworldplus.com. And hopefully if you have a chance to visit at some of the shows like the upcoming CoinX, you can find out more information in person at the uh, CoinWorld Plus booth that's going to be there. As a matter of fact, I believe not just the CoinWorld Plus booth is going to be there. Even some staff members from CoinWorld might be there. A little birdie told me that since the show is in St. Louis and I am in St. Louis, I might just have to make an appearance there Thursday and Friday. Saturday, I plan to bring my nephew Landon, who I found out is a occasional or frequent listener to the Coin World podcast. So <laughs> that's only one of our numbers. So uh, there's certainly uh, lots more folks out there there who are listening and, and boosting our, our numbers. We appreciate you, but I certainly uh, was surprised to learn that. And I'm looking forward to the show later this week. Always fun to go to a show and see what you can add to your collection Yes, it's always great to go to any type of activity, a coin show, but also the activities such as coin club meetings. Now, I'm going to take us back just a little bit. Last episode, we had Ellen Feingold, Dr. Ellen Feingold on here from the uh, Smithsonian and the National Numismatic Collection. And you recently, uh, let's tell us about your experience at the coin club meeting where you encountered another listener. Yeah, um, I had a friend and listener contact me and, uh, you know, say at the meeting, I just heard that podcast with Dr. Feingold and, you know, Smithsonian. She was so well-spoken and so enthusiastic and so, you know, so interesting. And she was, you know, she was feeding off you and you were feeding off her. And it was, that was just a great episode. And I said, you're right. I said, Larry and I, as we were, uh, you know, wrapping this up, we were kind of you know, telling each other, hey, this was really good. And we were excited to get that out. And as you know, as soon as we could, the next show that dropped after we did the interview, we we put it out there. And, um, you know, even though the exhibit's not till April, I mean, we could have held that, right? I mean, that's, there's no time element to it as far as the reason we had to get it out, you know, last week. I was so thrilled to hear that because that's why we do this. And um, we hope that we can continue to get some engaged guests and and we'll be engaged to um you know share our enthusiasm for this wonderful endeavor indeed and it's always you know as you pointed out right there why we do this is because a lot of folks get some value out of this and we do appreciate when we get the suggestions when we get the comments whether they're criticisms or comments 
And it just it's important to us to make this connection with those who are involved in the hobby. We may not be collecting the same thing. We may not be interested in the same time period. We may not have uh, everything that you necessarily want to talk about. It may be a guess that's not right down the center of what you're interested in. But I'll tell you what, one of the things we try to do is we try to go and get as much as we can. Our, our episode today, as a matter of fact, is going to feature an interview in which I learned so much. That's why you're not going to hear a lot of me. You're going to hear more of our guest because he had so much to share with us. And our guest, Peter Tampa, will be telling you a little bit more about what we learned. And hopefully you can learn as much as I learned, too, because there are so many different ways that you can learn about this hobby with the magazine Coin World, with the website coinworld.com but through the social media, through the Facebook platform that we have at CoinWorld and all the different Facebook groups that are out there because a, a seldom a day goes by, I don't see something that's interesting to me on the Facebook, on the Facebook groups especially. And sometimes you can find out some great news there as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I spend time look, following a bunch of groups and, and looking and what's being discussed. You know, I think... A year ago, almost, my story on the uh, poor man's V75 coin, that came out of a Facebook group. More recently, we saw the announcement of a new mule error. That's A mule is a coin. When you're talking about a coin, it's a coin that was struck from dies that were not intended to be used together. And this is a, um, a 2021 American Eagle reverse of 2021 quarter ounce gold bullion coin that was actually struck with a unfinished proof die for the obverse. And that's, that's sort of in the weeds of what it is. But the idea is, you know, it shouldn't exist. And it was an, an error, an example of whoops, we're pushing through and we didn't pay close enough attention. And so several dozen of these examples uh, surfaced and are entering the market, many of them encapsulated by PCGS. And it's just a reminder that every month we learn new information about a classic issue or find some new error about, a you know, something new that's just coming out. With so much stuff entering the market, there's always bound to be mistakes. And with so many things uh, sequestered in collections for decades, if not centuries. I mean, I think about the New England shilling that popped up in uh, Great Britain. Uh, it's coming up at auction uh, in uh, through Morton and Eden. And, you know, that's like a $300,000 coin or something crazy. Maybe that's 300,000 pounds. I don't remember. But, you know, the idea is there's still stuff out there. You got to always be open to that possibility with the understanding that most of the time, uh, you know, it's not going to be the case. Just the reality is, you know, it's like how many, how many little leaguers are going to play in the majors? Well, a very, very, very small percentage. But you know what? Some are going to make it. Just like how many of these things that people say are errors are, are actually the real thing. Well, most of them aren't. But keep that optimism because stuff still turns up. And uh, boy, you know, we we try to. Um, be on it when it does. And the social media is one way we can uh, stay in tune with what people are talking about and, and hearing about at that grassroots level. Yeah. When you have the groups that are dedicated to something like this, then you know that it's going to be something 
that's of an interest because generally social media gets a bad rap because it becomes something where you have flame wars and people are saying things that, uh, you, you know, they hide behind screen names, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes when you're involved in a group that's of an interest that you're particularly interested in, then it really does help to see when something from that group pops up there because, first of all, the moderators are making sure that it's something of value. And so you can get into that. You know, as we talk about what you discovered in this Facebook group here, it reminded me that Joe Cronin, one of our past guests, has just recently released his uh, newest edition of Mint Errors to Die For. So if it's something, if you don't have the first one, maybe you need to get into the second one. Joe said, if you have the first one, you know, it's just, it's a, there's a little more information in there. But nonetheless, regardless of which one you get, you got to get one. And again, I believe he's a guy that we see pop up in some of these Facebook groups every now and again, too, to make sure that, you know, what you have is really a mint error, not a post-mint damage situation or anything like that. And you can learn so much by the books and so much by the information that's shared in these groups. So many different ways you can learn information. And it's just like, this is what makes it so exciting, is that you just never know where something is going to turn up. Just like, when you search your change, you never know. It just might be the one that you've been, uh, you never really imagined that you would ever have your hands on it. I mean, just even finding a, a common, somewhat common coin that has some age to it, like when found the uh, the nickel, for the five cent coin from back in the uh, 40s and still looking and still searching for some of the ones to complete the collection of the uh, Washington quarters. I mean, just finished up one album, not yet the state quarters, not yet the national parks. They just finished up one album on that. And it's just, it's great because you just never know. It's there, it's out there. That's what circulation is all about. And, you know, fishermen relate to it. They never know when they're going to catch that trophy fish. They never know when they're going to cast their line into the water and pull up the big one. And that's the thing. We have this every day. We don't have to get into a boat. We just have to circulate. We just have to be there and keep our eyes open, and you can find the things that are look you're looking for. I'm excited. I mean, I'm about to just let you do the rest of the podcast, so I can go make change for a dollar. So, <laughs> you're still looking for that Florida quarter? No, no, no. That oh, okay. Florida quarter was well taken care of. I had a, okay. a friend of mine brought in a bag. That's of right. Quarter. That's right. Plus, uh, my good friend Brian Clark sent me a proof. Florida quarters. So I have okay. that as well. So very nice. Very good. I forgot about that. So, yep. you know, speaking of um, numismatics uh, of our home state, this week in numismatic history, I am highlighting something from Missouri history. Uh, hey, the show's in St. Louis. That's Missouri. But it just so happened that on November 5th, 1861, Okay, 1861. What was going on in America at the time? Hmm. Well, uh, that was when the pro-Southern Missouri government authorized $10 million in defense bonds. Missouri you know, operates in this unique space or occupies a unique status as uh, a state that had both northern and southern governments, although, you know, they were at odds with each other and, and the government, especially the southern, you know, they were in exile, moving around and all that. And there are both northern and southern issues of paper money and financial documents. And uh, it's a fascinating area. I really really should dip my toes into it more than just having books about it. But um, I thought that was, was fun. 
uh, especially just, you know, the, Hey, you know, we're, we're talking about a show in Missouri and I'm from, you know, I live there and it's, it's, um, you know, civil war history is great. If somebody, somebody wanted to uh, put together a set of civil war numismatics, you could focus just on that exclusively, you know, dedicate a lifetime, whether that's the civil war tokens, the encased sense, uh, scripts, sutler tokens, uh, all the paper money issues of the various states, Confederate money. I mean, it's it's such a rich area for enjoyment. Uh, and so that's why I'm zeroing in on that for this week in numismatic history. Indeed. What a period of time, though. I mean, when you uh, get back down to it again, those years of time of conflicts, it's unfortunate we had the conflict. But, you know, the fact that the way things were done to raise money for, you know, for the war effort and how the impact it's had on us even now, 160 years later. It's just, it's, it's incredible. If you're into history and uh, you just look at it from the numismatic side of it, the currency side of it, then there's just so much there and you could just keep going forever and ever. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, but I won't. And, um, you know, I, I think what's interesting is, Everything in American history intersects with numismatics. And uh, one of the stories on the November 1st, 2004 Coin World, this week in Coin World history, one of the stories on the cover illustrates that because the story by my late friend Eric Von Klinger is that of the um, New York judge ordering a firm to halt the sale of Freedom Tower silver dollars. In 2004, we were, you know, just three years removed from the terrorist attacks of 9-11. There was a firm issuing 2004 Freedom Tower silver dollars. That was, I guess, uh, after the design uh, for the building that would eventually rise in place of the World Trade Center. The National Collectors Mint uh, sold these quote-unquote coins, and it caused uh, quite a kerfuffle. The coins were issued, or pieces were issued, in the names of the Commonwealths of the Northern Mariana Islands, which was a U.S. territory. As such, they had no authority to issue U.S. currency, so then Attorney General Elliot Spitzer went after them, and they had to pay back a bunch of money, and these pieces are out there in the marketplace today, both silver and copper nickel ones. Cook Islands did a similar one. And, you know, it's, it's one of the handful of items, very, you know, small number of items that exist for Americans to remember that horrific day, you know, purpose made, I should say, because there are plenty of the pieces that were slabbed from coins that were recovered you know, these coins were recovered from the vaults under the World Trade Center and they were slabbed with special labels indicating as such uh, those weren't made. The objects themselves, the, the coins weren't made for uh, a memorialization of the event, but they were certainly encapsulated, labeled as such. So uh, I found that interesting, you know, looking back on the story 18 years later now. That was what jumped out at me. What about you from that issue? And I should note 2004 was chosen because that is the year that the Ancient Coin Collecting Guild was formed. You'll hear more about the ACCG uh, with our interview with Peter Tompa in mere minutes. 
And on the letters page, the first letter was the best letter to me. And that was a letter from Jake Reeve out of uh, Mellon, Wisconsin. And it says, for a change, I would like to share with the readers of this publication some of the joys of coin collecting rather than my complaints. I'm a college student who has been collecting since before my teenage years. Recently, my mother came home from a youth baseball game at which she volunteered in the concession stand, bearing a Ziploc, Ziploc bag of quarters and dimes. Upon quick inspection, I realized it was all silver. Now, this is in 2004. It was mostly Washington quarters and Roosevelt dimes, but did contain several Mercury dimes and even a well-worn Standing Liberty quarter. While setting up for the game, she realized something was different about the sound of the change and quickly exchanged her money for the silver coins. The next day, I went to the local credit union, which had provided the change for the game the night before, and I asked them if they had any older-looking rolls of change. I wound up exchanging all the cash I had on me for six old rolls of dimes and two old rolls of quarters. When I got home and opened the rolls, I was looking at all silver. Woohoo! Yeah, thanks. That, that's thanks to my mom realizing that the coin sounded different about the change she was handling. And I once heard that the reason why they had granite countertops back in the Old West was so that if somebody brought in a coin, the storekeeper could drop the coin on the counter if it made a sound different than the sound of pure silver, then they just simply didn't accept that. Hmm. So don't know if that's folklore, don't know, but there is a definite distinct sound to a legitimate coin. Now, he had said that it was uh, because it was something positive and not a complaint. Pretty much the rest of them were about complaints. This uh, was a letter from Frank Robinson that spurred a letter from Wayne Pearson out of Union City, Indiana. And it said, Frank Robinson replied to my letter where I asked, why are we so high on Jefferson? I suggested Jefferson could have ended slavery as the president. Not so, Robinson says. That would have led to a civil war. Then perhaps Jefferson could have set his own slaves free to set an example. Not so, he says. Jefferson was poor. A lady in the Bible gave her last two mites. She was poor. Jefferson did some great things, and we gave him a deserving memorial. Coins were conceived in liberty. It isn't an entitlement that Jefferson at all should replace liberty. Jefferson isn't on a stamp 24-7, though I think he actually is. He shouldn't be on a coin 24-7. Robinson suggests that a generic portrait of liberty is nice, but Thomas Jefferson portrays liberty better. I wonder what Frank thinks of our generic liberty bullion program. George Washington set the tone of not using people on our coinage, but designs that are emblematic of liberty. Jefferson doesn't immediately make you think of liberty. The bell does. The statue does. Stop using people. Get back to the classics. Generic or not, no one confused their meaning. And that's from Mr. Pearson out of Indiana. So there you have it. Agree to disagree. Yeah, for sure. There's, uh, you know, just a reminder that uh, all numismatics is political. 
I was at the Coin Club last week. Uh, the presentation was on the Carson City Mint, and there was a, a reference to the Bland Allison Act and the reason, you know, all those silver dollars were struck in the first place to appease mining interest. And, you know, is there's just no matter how you slice it, politics gets uh, in the way and in, is at the heart of, you know, the reason many of these things exist uh, for us today. So, um, of course, you're naturally going to have some discussion, debate, disagreement, perhaps, as was the case with that letter. So there is no disagreement, however, about the answer to this question. There is only right or wrong and I'm hoping you know the right answer. Last week, because of our discussion with Dr. Feingold of the Smithsonian, I asked you about whether there was a coin or coins for the Smithsonian, and if so, what is it or are they? And um, you know, I'm trying to be intentionally vague as to maybe throw you off. Are, is there one coin? Is there two coin? Is there is there a whole series? What's the you know how many is out there? Do they exist at all? What can you tell me about last week's trivia question? What do you know? I know. I think there were two. I think um, the ones I'm referring to came out in the... The ones I'm thinking are the only ones, the ones that came out in the era when it seemed like the it was a bonanza of commemoratives that came out. I mean, just recently purchased the Special Olympic one. So, you know, when I was going through that, it's just a few pages away. There was a Smithsonian coin. There were a lot of Olympic coins in 96. This one was another one from uh, 96, I believe. And I think there were two different ones. I think one was made in Philadelphia and one was made in Denver. So that's that's pretty much, I'm not sure the denominations. I don't recall that, but I think, you know, that I think that's the case. Well, you, you are essentially correct in saying there are two different coins if you consider that the silver dollar is different from the $5 half eagle, the gold half eagle. There are both brilliant uncirculated or uncirculated and proof versions. So, you know, as far as how many coins could you collect, there are four, but I was only looking for the two types. So I'm going to give you a yes on that answer uh, because you you were at least uh, right there with 1996. That was the 150th anniversary of James Smithson's donation to create the Smithsonian. And um, there are two coins that you can get out there to celebrate Design-wise, type-wise, um, you don't have to get both versions. And uh, so good for you. You you got it right. I am just just red hot. That's it, boy. Just hold me there. That's two in a row. So hey, hey. well now now we'll see if you can um, you can get this one. You know we're we're talking about ancient coins with Peter Tompa. and this is sort of uh, you know I'm not looking at the Coin World trivia game. I'm just pulling from the uh, piles of useless information that I have learned over the years. But so this is basic is <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. That's my point. This is basic. Good. Um, what is considered to be the oldest coin in the world? And forgive me if we've asked this already, but since this is episode 136 uh, and we've only, you know, generally spoken about ancient coins you know, three or four times as far as, you know, we had Tampa on a hundred episodes ago. We had Carrie Wetterstrom, I think on, we may have had a few others out there. So 
you know, this is pretty basic, but, you know, we've done enough shows. If I've asked two years ago, then, you know, maybe you forgot by now or you didn't hear that episode because you joined us uh, later on in the, the podcast journey. So you have uh, uh, some time to think about that. I don't think we discussed these with Peter, but uh, you certainly want to listen to hear what he has to say about the ongoing debate over cultural property and the importation of ancient coins in the United States, because boy, is that having an effect on the market and could it affect the market going forward, as we've learned. We are so delighted to welcome back Peter Tompa, the Executive Director of the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild, to the Coin World Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Larry has informed us that this is episode 136, and you were here for episode 36 100 weeks ago. There's a lot that has changed, a lot that's going on now in the ongoing fight against cultural property and, and with uh, laws regarding imports of ancient coins. Uh, this is a broad opening, and I'm going to let you go where you want to go in that regard, but bring us up to date. Bring the listeners up to date. Uh, where are things now, and, and what's of most concern at the moment, and have things gotten better or worse or stayed the same since the last time we spoke? Well, I think, generally speaking, they've gotten worse, although there are some uh, factors that are at work that may be helpful uh, going forward. They've gotten worse mainly in, in two fronts. First, on the import restrictions front, uh, there's been more import restrictions with these MENA, which is Middle Eastern and North African countries, uh, which have been pushed heavily by archaeological advocacy groups, including one uh, which is funded by a lady who has who uh, is the spouse of uh, one of the top partners at Goldman Sachs, and she has a um, has a firm that does work in the Middle East. And it, you know, it's one of these things where it probably looks good to her clients that she's helping out uh, with cultural heritage in, in the Middle East. But the most recent one of concern is Turkey, because um, Turkey, anyone who collects coins, uh, ancient coins, will know that that's one of the major minting areas of antiquity. So import restrictions were recently put on uh, coins from from Turkey that go up through uh, the, you know, the Ottoman period. They impact pretty much every ancient coin, although still Roman imperial coins are still off the list, So, which is good. The uh, interesting issue with, with this, other than the coin issue that we're all concerned about, is this has also impacted minority religious groups uh, that have fled persecution from different places. Um, so the Turkish MOU incorporates both Christian and Jewish artifacts, which has been very, very upsetting to um, groups that represent the Jewish and uh, Christian Greek exile communities of Turkey. And they have uh, really started a lobbying campaign directed against these MOUs because it impacts their cultural heritage. So because basically what what the restrictions do, in addition to hurting coin collectors who now have difficulty importing coins that are on the Turkish designated list in the United States, they also list a whole host of Jewish and uh, Christian cultural heritage, which uh, at least in theory and probably in practice, because it is on the designated list, exiles who 
fled Turkey, you know, years ago um, with the creation of the Turkish Republic, you know, moved to Europe or wherever, brought their cultural heritage with them, you know, their crosses, their Jewish artifacts, etc. Uh, if they try to come into the United States with these artifacts, they're subject to detention, seizure and forfeiture, which is extremely upsetting to these groups because, you know, it's basically the United States is recognizing the rights of an authoritarian government uh, that of Erdogan and Turkey to the cultural heritage of uh, displaced minorities. Uh, so there's a practical consideration that they're worried about items of uh, exiles being seized, but there's also just sort of the idea that the U.S. is recognizing the rights of the, uh, Erdogan, who's who's authoritarian, certainly, uh, and the Turkish state to the cultural heritage of, of people who were forced from that country and had to leave their had to leave in many cases their goods at home in Turkey. So because they've gotten interested in it, you know, and they have much more lobbying pull on Capitol Hill, it is helpful because it has raised the uh, raised the visibility of this issue. The other thing that's happening right now is the uh, if anyone still thinks that the archaeological lobby is about just conservation, uh, they should look at what they've done recently. They've also pushed the idea that antiquities dealers, and they, they define antiquities dealers very, very broadly to include anyone who sells antiques, um, should be covered under something called the Bank Secrecy Act, which is essentially an anti-money laundering provision. So it would impose all sorts of regulations on people who are subject to this Bank Secrecy Act. Right now, what has happened is they were successful in getting Congress to pass a bill which was attached to the National Defense Authorization Act. So it had a pass uh, last late last year. It passed over uh, Trump's veto. And now we're in a situation where uh, an organization within the Treasury Department called FinCEN is looking at the issue. And they just uh, finished a consultation where they sent out questions to the to various groups as to, you know, what should be covered and what shouldn't and why. Uh, they have not yet uh, issued regu- regu- uh, regulations. So the coin groups, including the ACCG and uh, PNG and um, IAPN put in papers where we argued that coins should not be covered because they're not covered under the UK's rules. So the UK already has similar rules. It just, because of the types of businesses are very small, most of the businesses done with Europe where there's not really that much of a money laundering problem. Uh, maybe you should just not impose these kind of BSA requirements on coin dealers, you know, under this rule, which is really the justification for it was that uh, there was looting in after, you know, in the Syrian civil war, which funded terrorism. But basically there's been a lot of scholarly groups looking at this, including ones with no dog in the fight, like Rand, uh, who have concluded that it was not really a major problem as, as was billed by the various archeological groups. So, you know, the, the issue is that the justification for it really isn't there. The potential harm on very, very small businesses, because most coin dealers are, you know, uh, solo, you know, one or two people and a lot of them are t- part-time, you know, that would be a, a major hassle for people, especially the part-timers. So, you know, we've made all sorts of arguments. We'll see how it turns out. There's really, there's two issues at hand then. Yep. I mean, I think that's 
uh, needs to be clarified so people yes. understand. You have the the ongoing thing with them. You you say MOUs. That's memorandum of understanding. Yes, yeah, so that's okay. a that's sort of a legal framework that uh, sets in place what kind of coin, what type of coin can come into the country or not. And so the MOUs are memorandum of understanding, and it authorizes the imposition of import restrictions, and that governs what type of coins can come into the country. Uh, the problem is, is they, you know, if you can prove that they were out of the country for which import restrictions were given as of the date of the restrictions, they could still come in. But that's actually quite difficult to do for most coins. There are, you know, the higher value coins, mostly Greek coins in, in auction, you know, that have been in auction catalogs for years where you can do this with, with a percentage of them. But the very minor coins, a lot of them just don't have much of a document trail. And so, you know, if they're on the designated list, they're subject to uh, potential seizure. So that's one aspect of it. And that's yes. only when it's coming into the U.S. That's correct. Yes. I, although I will say when things come into the U.S., they come in conditionally. So, you know, later on, at least in theory, customs could... Um, you know, track down something that's already here, you know, if it was imported recently. The trade in ancient coins, you know, as you noted, there's a lot of business that goes on in Europe, uh, but there's a lot of coins. There's plenty of coins that have been here in the U.S. I just wanted to understand if those under the, you know, import restrictions to me says, well, they're already here, so they wouldn't have to follow that that's no. correct. Yeah, I mean, that's correct. I mean, I was just making making the point that if they recently came in, you know, just be, you know, once something crosses the border, uh, Customs still has the opportunity to investigate it if they find out something later. So that's what I was saying. But generally speaking, yes, you're correct. Uh, things okay. that are here, you don't really have to worry about. So you, you mentioned the effect with Turkish coins, but why is that so concerning in the sense of, you know, if, if I want to buy an Athenian owl coin, that's from Athens. So what, that has nothing to do with Turkey, right? I mean, I, I'm asking because A, I don't know, but B, I think you might have people ask that question. How many of the coins that, you know, if I pick up a auction catalog from one of the big firms that deals in ancient coins, how many of those coins traded through or circulated through what we know as modern day Turkey you know, 500,000 years ago, you seem to suggest there's a, a rather large number. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, Turkey, so the way they do this typically is by mint. So these are Turkish mint coins. So when you think about what's out there on the market, a lot of the ancient, a large portion of the ancient coins, the Greek coins actually were struck in Turkey. So most, many of them are theoretically covered. They, what they did here was to make it even more confusing. They did recognize that widely circulating coins, they really couldn't put restrictions on under the statute because you really have to have some sort of uh, proof or some sort of ability to prove that they were likely found there. They excluded in the regulations widely circulating coins, but they don't identify what they are. So, I mean, you know, it, it's just confusing to people. Subject to somebody's interpretation, sounds like. Yeah, I mean, so because it is a, a subject to scholarly interpretation, which is a problem. I mean, you need regulations to be pretty clear so people can follow them. 
Uh, but, you know, if you just look at the type of, look at the ancient coin world. So this applies to any ancient coin, theoretic, possibly, that was struck in Turkey, right? Including, you know, a no, number of, you know, Greek era coins, certainly. Uh, so all the you know, Lycian coins and, you know, these city-state coins from Turkey during the Greek period, then the Roman provincial coins. And there's a lot of people who collect those as well. So it applies to that. It applies to the Ottoman coins and it applies just to some Byzantine coins from the minor mints of the Byzantine empire in Turkey. Uh, it does not apply to the major mints, um, but it's confusing. So it's, it is somewhat confusing. And if it's confusing to collectors, it's also going to be confusing to customs. And unfortunately, you know, the mentality there is when in doubt, seize. And so there's a potential problem. And I will note the uh, ANA wrote a great letter to the State Department asking for some clarification as to what coins were actually covered and which aren't. And that was done, I think, back in June, and we still haven't heard anything. So, you know, the State Department is not being cooperative. So we're still in a holding pattern as to... The MOU has been signed, but we don't know what restrictions might come. Well, down. no, I that- mean, we do. I mean, the importers, the regulations have been issued. So, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they could seize things that are on the designated list. And as I mentioned, that's pretty much any coin from the Greek period struck in Turkey, unless it was a widely circulating one, which, again, is subject to interpretation. All the uh, provincial issues of that uh, country and then Ottoman also. I just, I don't mean to cut you off, but it, it occurs to me, what if I, I mean, I have some ancient coins that I bought over the mm-hmm. last five, 10 years that are in the five to $50 range. Uh, you know, they're not going to be in any auction catalog. They're not, there's not going to be, and, and, you know, I bought them uh, from trusted dealers that, you know, I know mm-hmm. who've been in the business for a long time and, and know that it's legitimate and all that. But for a lot of this stuff, you know, you don't get a bill of sale. You don't even get a receipt. In many cases, I mean, how many coin shows you go to and people just whip out cash and they move on for a $10, $50, whatever purchase. What sort of thing can a collector like me do to guard against, like, you know, if I wanted to do anything with these? I, how can I, I can't prove that I've had these for X number of years. How are collectors grappling with that side of things? I mean, that's the problem. I mean, you, that is the major problem. I mean, right now it's really just a problem when you're trying to import things because, you know, you're, you're doing that here in the United States over in Europe. Guess what? They're, you know, collectors are buying small value coins uh, with cash and they're not necessarily getting a, um, a form or any kind of bill of sale or invoice for it. Uh, And even if they have an invoice, it's not necessarily going to be transmitted when they sell it to a dealer. So this is where the problem comes in, especially for these very, very low value coins, which is what most people collect. You know, Uh, we're not talking about the, you know, the $50,000 fabulous Greek tetradram from uh, one of the Sicilian city states. We're talking about, you know, what most people collect. And that's the kind of stuff that's most impacted by this when it's coming into the United States. And I mean, the problem is if, if customs stops it and you can't prove the negative, at least according to the way they look at things, then your coin is going to get seized and, you know, there's not much you could do about it. 
you know, hiring a lawyer is very expensive and, uh, you're, you know, uh, you're not going to hire a lawyer to try to defend your rights to a $50 coin. And that they, you know, come up with these, I was just listening to something today where somebody from the state department was saying, well, we've seized and repatriated 20,000 artifacts in the past, uh, I think five or 10 years. I would venture to guess 95% of those were abandoned because the people didn't, you know, just couldn't afford a lawyer. To, uh, yeah. They just gave that. up. They threw their hands in the air and said, yeah. And, and, and a lot of them, and I'm sure a large percentage of these coins or whatever they are, I, I assume coins are, are a fair amount of that, you know, were bought quite legally in Europe, but because they, they couldn't produce the paperwork, they're, going back to some other country where they, where they may have not been for decades or that even thousands of years. So it, there's something wrong here, you know, especially when we're talking about the uh, custom seizing items for based upon MOUs with EU countries when the EU allows, you know, coins to be legally exported, you know, so it makes absolutely no sense, especially in that particular situation. Are there exemptions granted for like cultural, like museums or educational type things? Are there, no. are there special circumstances? Nope. They don't, they don't see, they don't recognize this. So then we're denied the opportunity to be further educated about the ways of the world by this. It does limit the types of things that could come into the United States. That's correct. I guess one of the things, you know, my mind is this could really either one of two things it's gonna kill the trade in common objects or it's gonna force it underground and it seems to me that if the goal is to respect the cultural heritage uh through objects of importance that they should exclude items that maybe are almost literally a dime a dozen not literally but you know there's We've all seen the junk box coins that are, you know, still got debris on them or whatever, and they're two to five dollars. Or it's going to force people to—they're going to give that up, or they're going to go about it illegally. And and neither sound really uh, like good options. Is there is there a third way? What what's, what's well? Next? I mean, I think the it would be wonderful. I mean, we have been trying to push the idea that if you actually look at what the statute says. Uh, customs is not applying these things, applying these rules correctly. Because if you look at the statute uh, and then you also look at some of the legislative history, what they actually authorized in Congress was that the restrictions are only should be perspective and they should only apply to things that are illicitly exported from the country for which import restrictions were granted as of the date of the restriction. So it's a perspective restriction. But what customs instead does is they use that date and anything imported after that date is subject to detention, seizure and forfeiture, which is much, much broader because under that scenario, it includes all the things that are like floating around in the legitimate markets in Europe, you know, that have been out of Turkey or wherever for decades, you know, just because they don't have the documentation necessary for legal import. If so, if, if customs is forced to do to apply the statute as it was written, then I think we would, wouldn't be in a, in a series of situation. Unfortunately, this is the scenario in the ACCG case, which you covered in our last discussion, which, you know, we did actually uh, import uh, Cypriot and Chinese coins that were un- undocumented, that didn't have a provenance, but they were purchased from legitimate sources 
Uh, and we argued that the burden was on the Customs Service to show that they were illicitly escorted after the effective date of the regulations. Uh, they did not do that. They just they just said, well, you know, they're on the designated list, and that's all we have to prove. Unfortunately, the, what the courts did was they they viewed this, you know, based upon the arguments of the State Department and Customs as a quote unquote foreign policy issue. So they said they would not get involved in the way Customs was implementing the statute. So this is one of the issues that is also important to the, you know, these Jewish groups and the Greek groups, because it also is what hurts them in terms of things that are, uh, you know, in Europe with exiles and they just don't have, they don't have the documentation to prove that it's theirs, you know, as if they brought it in the United States. So this is one of the things that they are lobbying about and, you know, hopefully something good will happen, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's hard to get the interest up on Capitol Hill to, you know, delve into, you know, what is viewed as sort of an esoteric issue. Uh, but the fact that they're actually interested in it has given it a higher profile than I think it would otherwise have if it was just coin collectors making this point. Can collectors, can listeners, should, should they be encouraged to contact the representative? I mean, what's the I think it's premature at this point. I mean, if we ever... If we ever get any kind of legislation, uh, which, you know, who knows if it will ever happen, uh, that would be the time to do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's, let's veer away from that then and to this other aspect of our discussion, which is the FinCEN stuff. I mean, that, that seems to me as potentially having much larger impact or effect on coins, all coins uh, in, in general. Is, is that, a fair uh, understanding or well, it would have effect on the dealers, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that's going to affect the collectors though. If the de- if dealers stop selling because they don't want to deal with all the right. stuff well, you, or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, the direct effect would be on, on dealers because there'd be added costs, you know, at least, you know, four or five or six grand per year. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what the trade is made up of, so we've sort of, in the paper that IAPN and PNG did, we estimate really based upon actually work by others that there's around 5,000 coin dealers in the United States. And maybe two thirds of those are actually part-time. Most of these people who sell coins are not, they're all small businesses because I believe it or not, the definition of small business goes up to 1,500 people. So even, um, but most of them are, would be characterized as micro businesses, which are very, very small. Uh, you know, and most coin dealers are probably one or two people, quite frankly. So if you tack on six or seven grand per year, and then you also require the time it takes to, you know, basically do an audit every year and, uh, you know, follow up with all the red tape, you know, we're talking hours and, you know, days, um, you know, it's going to hurt. And I think it will certainly drive at least the part-timers and or potentially drive the part-timers and as well as, you know, the people who are close to retirement who just don't want to deal with it out of the market. So that would limit the number of dealers out there. Uh, and I think that would have an impact on the availability of coins and just actually the, the value, the, the price too, because, you know, dealers buying things is, you know, help support prices as well. And I will note again that the archaeological advocacy groups pushing this, they've argued to FinCEN that, their definition of an antiquities dealer should be anyone who deals in anything 
that is over 100 years old. So they're conflating antiquity with antique. And if, if that's the case and it actually hits everyone who sells a coin that's over 100 years old, that's pretty much every coin dealer in the United States, I would imagine. So it could be quite problematic and it wouldn't only affect coins. Of course, it would call affect uh, you know antique stores and antique smalls and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it, it's potentially a very, very large problem. You know, I hope you know, FinCEN actually reads what, what, what was sent to them because it wasn't only the coin trade, a number of other dealer groups, you know, and the dealer groups, you know, believe that, um, you know, the term antiquity should be narrowly construed probably to something more in line of uh, before 500 AD. Uh, and then also um, coin dealers and ethnographic dealers have argued that it shouldn't apply to them at all because uh, in the UK, they have similar rules and they've exempted both ethnographic art dealers and coin dealers from this, you know, again, for the same reasons that if this is really about money laundering, as opposed to, you know, just trying to suppress the trade because the archaeologists don't like it, it's probably not much of a money laundering problem because we're not talking about high value things. We're talking about lots of low value things. Um, and we're talking about very small business. It seems like a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, I mean, this is all based upon advocacy from archaeological advocacy groups who convinced Maxine Waters of California to stick this in a bill that she got attached to the this National Defense Authorization Act, which is you know basically what what authorizes the you know the U.S. military. So it's kind of a hard to stop that you know once it was attached to that to that bill. We had supported a Senate alternative, which would have just studied the issue. And we thought that was appropriate, you know, because again, a lot of this was based upon some supposition that terrorist groups, mainly ISIS, were funding themselves heavily with uh, stolen antiquities. Again, a number of more sober analysis came through, you know, from Rand Corporation and others really disputed that and said it was an extremely minor part of their, what they were using to fund themselves. So, you know, hopefully uh, FinCEN will look at that, will, you know, look at the fact that the justifications really aren't what what they were advertised to be. Look at the definition of antiquities. Look at the idea that um, UK has looked at this and have exempted coin dealers and ethnographic art dealers. And they've uh, kept the definition of antiquities to really ancient art and uh, really limit this. And then or if they do it, you know, have fairly high uh, thresholds where it applies, where it only applies to the larger dealers and the larger transactions. Is there a reasonable timetable for FinCEN to take the next step? Yeah, they're required under the statute to issue their proposed regulations by the end of the year. So we got to, you know, look for them by the end of the year. There should be another opportunity to comment at that time. So if it does include coin dealers and if the, if the thresholds are very low, we're going to need a major lobbying campaign to uh, get people to, uh, to comment on that and at least request a much higher thresholds. Okay. So what's the, other than, of course, you know, if that happens and, and we'll make sure that, you know, coin world reports on it. Other than that, what's the best way to uh, keep touch for somebody who wants to be aware of what's going on, how can they follow the news and and know when to maybe grab the armor and, and right. push back? Yeah, unfortunately, I mean it's not that as easy as as it was in the 
the old days with uh, when there was a seller magazine. But, you know, it actually is. Maybe it is actually is there because all you do, if you join the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild or at least look at the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild website, we do actually cover, you know, important issues uh, in the news section. And then, you know, on occasion we've asked people to comment on various things. We've asked people to comment on MOUs, for example. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, people think, well, state doesn't, the State Department doesn't really care what we say. Maybe that is true. But, you know, if, you, if no one comments, then they can pitch it that, oh, well, this is not a controversial thing. Uh, I will say with organizations like FinCEN or the U.S. Congress, they do care what you say, with what you say. So, you know, hopefully when the FinCEN regulations come out and there's, you know, if we need to comment on them, uh, hopefully um, that effort will be undertaken and uh, to publicize that and people will actually comment. So keep our fingers crossed. All right. Uh, that's a, a great way to uh, close the discussion. We thank you for getting us up to date on uh, the situations. And of course, we'll be looking you know, to hear from you as things develop and, and we can get the word out when uh, when appropriate. Sounds great. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it. So that was our interview with Peter Tompa, Executive Director of the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild. We thank him again for that. Uh, there's a lot going on in that space. It's been two years since he was on, so we wanted to get everyone up to speed with the situation today. Wow, and it's just amazing to me just how broad this actually is and it just the point that i comes home to is that the idea that special interests really can skew the message to the point where it damages the situation i mean the the archaeological people have their perception of it and uh, i i totally agree with peter that you know the coins shouldn't even be considered in this because we're not talking you know the relics and and i was you know my question about the educational exemptions and it's just it's kind of a shame i I realize there has to be regulations i realize everybody's different um you know the idea of aligning ourselves with the eu is it just makes sense but you know here again if uh, you know it's just something as we try to learn more about what's going on and try to stay current about what's happening there's a lot going on that you know we're going to have to keep an eye out for and as he mentioned you know by the end of the year so we'll just have to see how this materializes want to thank peter for his time and for his expertise and his continued work in the accg and uh you know if you're interested check out the website i I definitely you know something worth uh worth keeping an eye on here because without our ancients we don't have a hobby here Absolutely. So, and without you listeners, we don't have a podcast. So, we thank you for being here. And without Coin World Plus uh, sponsor, we we wouldn't be uh, doing this as well. Uh, so, everybody is important on this journey. Um, certainly, if you have a chance to help another collector or get more collectors into it, um, you know, please do. We're always looking for that opportunity. Uh, and and as always, until next week. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect.
manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.